0: reading of scripture and we'll turn to John chapter 5 and I'll read verses 1 through 16 and uh, if you're wondering about the division there just remember that man put the verses there the verse numbers and in the Greek it's just all one paragraph so I'll begin reading in verse 1 after this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now, a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When he saw or when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him. Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews, therefore, said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, who made me well, said to me, take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn, a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you have been made well. Sin No more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we pray to you, the Lord of the Sabbath, on this day, your day, the Christian Sabbath, And pray that by your spirit you would open our eyes to see the wonderful things in this passage. Help us to understand it and to live accordingly and to repent of anything that we need to turn from. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So recently I have found out that in this congregation we have many good cooks. I got to get on the meal train and, uh, of course, none is as good as my wife, just to put that out there. Uh, But we have many good cooks in this congregation and sermon preparation for a pastor can be like preparing a meal. You know, you can spend lots of time in preparation. You can try to make sure all the right ingredients are there. Give it time to cook in the oven Just the right amount of time and you put it on the table Sunday morning and you hope everyone loves it. And then the Lord teaches you it's not about you and it's not about your power. It's about his power. And uh, that can happen. Then there there are some times where you're just happy as a pastor to put something on the table. You women, you you who provide the meals, no doubt, in your home. Perhaps you've experienced that. It's been that kind of day. You're just happy to have food on the table. You don't want to hear anything from anybody about what you sat down on the table. Well, sermon preparation can be like that. It just varies from week to week. And this morning was somewhere in the middle. And regardless of what the week has been, sermon preparation should always be a labor of love. And I say that because it is my privilege, my joy to spend time in God's Word. And uh, that week after week after week. And as we come to this text, this is one of those passages that after just diving into it a little bit, it's like, oh, what am I going to do with this? And it is difficult. And I don't mean to scare you as a reader of Scripture by any means, but we need to understand what, what lies in the text. And the reason I talk about my somewhat timidity of approaching this text, Uh, there are several textual variants. We'll talk about that in a moment. You just need to understand behind or underneath your English translation, whatever you use, um, that English translation comes from a translation of the Greek text, or rather a copy of the Greek text, right, in the New Testament, which was given in Greek. There are these different families of Greek texts, right, And uh, we, we need not to be scared about what I'm saying, because when it comes to the textual integrity of the New Testament, we have thousands of copies that agree with each other, something like 90 something percent. And that is greater integrity than even we have with the writings of Plato. So if you're going to doubt, if a critic is going to say, you can't rely on the text of the New Testament, then you turn around and say, well, you can't rely on the text of Plato. And there are thousands, I'm sure, of other reasons as to why we should have um, confidence in the Greek, the Greek um, New Testament and all of the various families of Greek New Testaments. But the point is, there's, there's a textual variant and uh, maybe in, at the end of verse 3, you have brackets in your Bible, and there's a note about that in verse 4. Well, was that originally in the margin? Was that a note that a scribe put uh, in or next to the text of the Greek New Testament? Some Greek New Testaments have that as part of the text of Scripture. And, and then when it comes to this man, some commentators say he was not converted. Others say, well, he was And uh, when you come down to verse 14, what Jesus says there, there's disagreement as as to what Jesus says. And I'm talking about some of my, quote, heroes of the faith today. If I were to mention their names, you'd probably know them. But when you go read the dead guys, the reformed dead guys, well, my modern day heroes disagree with them. And I take the reformed dead guys interpretation of this passage. And so all that's to say, if you dive into the study of Scripture, sometimes you will come across some of these things. Now, it's my understanding after meditation, prayer, reading, that really what John is doing. Remember, he's writing under the inspiration of God's spirit. But humanly speaking, what John is doing is he is setting us up for what follows in verses 17 and following. There's this dispute about the Sabbath day. And they are questioning Jesus' jurisdiction concerning the Sabbath. And Jesus is really going to wreck them, as some people say today, because He's going to wreck their system because He's not only going to intimate that He's Lord of the Sabbath, as He does in other passages, He's going to say that He's on par with God and assert deity, divinity, He's part of the Godhead. And so what what is happening is John is setting the scene for what happens in the following passage. And I want us to understand that. Really, the focus of this text is not so much about this man who is healed as much as it is about the Sabbath and what Jesus does on the Sabbath of the Old Testament there. And so Jesus heals on the Sabbath day, and this sets the stage for what follows. And so this morning, I want us to see three headings of this passage, three divisions, a right use of the Sabbath, the perversion of the Sabbath, and of course, the consequential uh, conflict over the Sabbath. That's what we're going to look at this morning. So first of all, then a right use of the Sabbath In verses 1 through 9, Jesus presents to us a a right, a correct view and use of the Sabbath. Jesus is serving. Jesus is ministering. Jesus heals this paralytic. And so we're told there in verse 1, after this, after what happened in chapter 4, there is a feast of the Jews. We don't know. We aren't told what feast this is. If you try to figure it out, perhaps it could have been the Passover Could have been the Feast of Tabernacles as well. Uh, But we just simply aren't told. Jesus at this time went up to Jerusalem. In verse 2 it says, There was in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool. This pool, John notes, is called in the Hebrew Bethesda. That means house of mercy. Now you may have another translation with a different name, Beth-zatha. And that could come from... uh, combination of Aramaic and Hebrew, I think it is. But the point is, uh, in the Hebrew, John tells us, it is Bethesda, house of mercy. And so he says it has five porches. Uh, These had uh, columns, five columns, actually, that held a roof of some sort next to this pool. And this pool was located next to the Sheep Gate. Sheep Gate was probably the gate through which the sheep for the sacrifices in the temple would have entered and so there is by this pool, which wasn't very deep, evidently. There was by this pool shelter from the, the sun's heat coming down in that very hot, very arid climate. And underneath that shelter, we are told who was there. Verse three it says, "In these lay a great multitude, a multitude, multitude. There was a lot of people here." And uh, he says. They were sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed. And in the Greek, um, for the last two there, the the lame and the paralyzed, the idea is that they're dried up and they're shriveled and bent over. Why are are they there? They're there because uh, this was a place evidently used for these people that they might cool off in the so the, the day's heat. But they are there as a result of the fall. Our fall. Mankind's fall into sin. God cursed the ground. God cursed Adam and Eve. And as Romans 5 tells us, he also cursed us by cursing our first parents. Adam stood in our place. He failed the test. And disease Whatever shape, form or fashion. And ultimately, as Romans six twenty three says, death comes because of sin. And we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so there they lay. And then John tells us there in verse three, they're waiting for the moving of the water. Some would say that this was a spring. And so the water would ripple as you know air comes up from the spring at the bottom of this pool. But John says there, I think John says in verse four, for an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now, again, that verse and little of what proceeds before it. Some Greek New Testaments have have it as a note on the side. Some think that a scribe put that there as an explanation so that we would know what's going on at this pool. Some Greek translations have it as part of the Greek text given to us by God. When you go back and read the early church fathers, they assume that it was part of the word of God. The older writers assume that as well. But you see, there's a newer family of Greek manuscripts that have been found in the past two, three hundred years, which have it as a side note. But either way. Personally, I'm glad that it is here because it does shed light on what happens. Some would say, well, it really wasn't an angel that came down. Uh, It was a spring and they were superstitious. But we know the water was stirred. And as some have pointed out, why would this man, you know, be here? Why would they all lay there waiting if no one was actually healed? And it could have been one of those miracles Surrounding the arrival of God's Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. They're good men who take different sides concerning this. By the way, John Gill, the London Baptist who served in the same church where Charles Spurgeon would serve just after him, John Gill says, well, it could have been a preacher that came to preach at this area because in the Greek, messenger, or angel means messenger. As we've seen in Revelation, they're the angels of the seven churches, the messengers, the pastors and the preachers of those churches. And so he took that view. But whatever was happening, this man was here with the other who were lame, waiting to get into the pool. And so Jesus then ministers to this man. He comes to him in verse six. It says, when Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he already had been in that condition a long time. Now, how did Jesus know? Perhaps someone told him. But again, as we've seen at the end of John chapter 2, Jesus knew what was in me. He knows what's in our hearts. He is omniscient because he is the second person of the Godhead. He has all knowledge. And so Jesus knew this man. He knew his condition. He comes to him and asks him a question. Do you want to be made well? Now, Why would Jesus ask that? Maybe this man had lost hope. 38 years. I mean, some of you, I'm getting to that age where I have to say some of you are older than me. Not most of you. I know you have ailments. I know you have disease, sickness, pains. Some of you who are younger um, have some as well. But Jesus knows your ailments. He knows your pain. He knows how long you've had that pain and that disease and ailment. This man suffered for 38 years. Just let that sink in. And so, when we are tempted to complain, let us consider that it could be a longer time that we have such ailments. And disease and pain. So Jesus comes. He asks this question. Why does he ask this question? Well, I I think it's to stir up hope in this man. It is to draw out of this man faith. The idea that he can be healed. The idea, once again, that he can be healed. And Jesus mercifully asked this man this question. And we know who Jesus is. We know that he could have healed all these people. He singles this man out. He approaches him. He takes the initiative. Perhaps this is teaching us a little bit about God's sovereign grace, His choice of His own people. And so He asked the question. And uh, in Isaiah 35 and verse 6, by the way, it says this, talking about the arrival of Messiah, the arrival of Jesus. It says, Then the lame shall leap Like a deer and the tongue of the dumb shall sing for waters shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And so we have then this question from Jesus in verse 15, rather verse uh, seven, the sick man, it says, answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool. When the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. So he doesn't really know who Jesus is. Doesn't know his name. Doesn't know he's a worker of miracles. Doesn't know who's standing before him. And so there is our Lord Jesus. Look at verse 8, what Jesus says. Rise up, take up your bed, and walk. That's a command. Is there anything perhaps ironic about that? That's like walking to a dead man and saying, get up, wake up, right? Well, this teaches us that there is in the divine word, a divine power. And it also teaches us, I think, as do the miracles throughout scripture, that we do not have the ability to do what is required of us to do by God. We are born dead in our sins and trespasses. Ezekiel was commanded to preach to dry bones. I mean the flesh wasn't even on. But there they, they came together. And they assembled as he preached. And then in the gospels elsewhere. Jesus he, he commanded a man with a withered hand. To stretch forth his hand. And of course, in John 11, he he comes to the tomb of Lazarus intentionally late. And he he commands Lazarus, come forth, Lazarus. Lazarus rises from the dead. And so it is with the gospel. You know, the preacher or perhaps you as you, you talk to others about Jesus, you have to give that command. You have to let them know this is what is required. Repent and believe. We're telling that to dead men. And yet God, who is sovereign and full of grace and mercy and power, will grant that power to whom he wills. Perhaps you've heard of Augustine. We call him a church father. By the way, Calvin and his institutes calls such men church babes because they weren't as developed in their theology. Not as, not as him. That's not what he meant. The Roman Catholic Church looked up to these men and like made mega doctrines out of their writings. And so he says, let's not call them fathers. Let's call them church babes. But that being said, Augustine had a good theology of sin. And in one of his works, he made this prayer. He he said something like, Lord, grant. He said, he said, Lord. Demand what you will. But Grant. What you demand. To put it another way, Lord, command what you will, but grant what you command. And he understood, like this text, that we need help from God to obey his every command, even to be raised from the dead spiritually. And so Jesus then. Heals this man, it says in verse nine, immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. He obeyed Jesus because immediately he was healed. This is a miracle. It's out of the ordinary. It is to show that Jesus is the son of God. It also points us forward to the day at which we will all be resurrected and Christians will be joined, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, will be joined in their spirit to their glorified body, free from sin. It will have no expiration date. It will be prepared to dwell in eternity forever. And Jesus heals this man completely. In verse 14, he says, You have been made well. You have been made whole. You have been made healthy. This is unlike the faith healers today or yesterday who would claim that they have powers to heal. Man, I know when I was like five years old, my grandmother used to watch Ernest Ainsley and he would, he had tons of hairspray and he would say, put your hand on the TV and name it, claim it and all this stuff. And and what a crook, What, what crooks are out there taking people's money. If these men can really heal people, why, as Chuck Swindoll, I think, said 30 years ago, why don't they go to the hospital and heal people? No. You remember the 90s? One famous uh, so-called preacher went to the Omni, and crowds would flock to the Omni waiting outside to get in, and these people would come in. Yeah, I went to the doctor, and I couldn't hear, and somebody rolls up in a wheelchair, and they stand up. Really? Go to the hospital where the doctors can verify their sickness and disease. And let's see what you can do then. So Jesus healed this man. This is part of the fundamental doctrine of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was immediate. It wasn't like they had to do it two or three times like you see on TV sometimes. Because there's something wrong with the person. No, Jesus, he healed this man. Now, why why have I said that this is a right use of the Sabbath? It's because this is Jesus' use of the Sabbath. As we'll see, the Pharisees considered the Lord's Day, which was on Saturday back then, they considered the Sabbath as a day of idleness. You don't do anything. Jesus here teaches us that it is a day of service. In addition to a day of worship, we cease from our normal labors in order that we might worship the living God together as His people. But it's also a day of service. And I'll talk more about that in just a second. Now, this man had been paralyzed for 38 years. Um, There he is walking around. He's got his bed with him. It it wasn't a wooden bed with, you know, a sealy mattress. It was a little mat that rolled up and he could put it on his shoulder and walk around. Now, you would think that the Jews and the the Jews in John's John's text would be ecstatic, that they would be leaping and walking with him. No, they didn't see it that way. And so that leads to the second point of perversion of the Sabbath in verses 10 through 13. In verse 10, uh, John mentions the Jews there. The Jews, therefore, said to him who is cured, it is the Sabbath. What does John mean by the Jews? It, he could mean the Jewish people, the, all of the um, ethnic Jews at that time. But often in John's gospel, he uses this term to refer to those who represent the Jewish people, and in particular, the Sanhedrin. And out of those, the Pharisees, those legalists, those who followed the rules and their own rules, by the way. And look at what they say. They say to him in verse 10, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful you to carry your bed. What? I mean, this comes across immediately in my mind as cruel. Cruel. Imagine someone is paralyzed. They're walking. I'm not happy for you. I'm noticing that you're walking. And by the way, you have that little bed that weighs, you know, five ounces rolled up on your shoulder. You're breaking the Sabbath. That's, that's what's in their heart. Why? Because they're self-righteous. Maybe they're thinking about such passages as Jeremiah 17 Jeremiah 17, 21 and 22, where it says, thus says the Lord, take heed to yourselves and bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring it by the gates of Jerusalem. Hello, there it is. Nor carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day, nor do any work but hallow the Sabbath day as I commanded your fathers. But they did not obey or incline their ear. Maybe they're thinking of texts like that, but more probably they're thinking about their own oral tradition such as was in the Mishnah where they had all these additions to the law of God, their interpretation, their application. And in the Mishnah, in one section, they had 39 articles forbidding, 39 types of work on the Sabbath day. And one of those was folding up the bed and carrying it. But if you look at the context, even there... It was the bed that traveling workers used. So if they were traveling on the Lord's day, if they were working on the Lord's day, this man simply was walking on the Lord's day. So do you see their fixation on those who would break rules? It's because there's this standard and their eyes are on other people to see who's keeping and breaking the law as opposed to how they keep the law perfectly themselves. And so when they can point to someone else, they say, aha, you broke the law. So I feel better about myself now. And of course, they were a a rule loving people. And as Jesus will go on to say in Matthew 15, it was these, the Pharisees that taught as doctrines. The commandments of men, they taught as the revealed word of God, the commandments made up by men is what Jesus teaches there. Another one of those rules they had Was that you were not to look into a mirror fixed on a wall on the Lord's day. And I think the reason was is because you might be tempted to uh, fix whatever blemish you might find on your face. And that would be work. And so do you see how Jesus then tells the Pharisees elsewhere? You've made the law of God of no effect. You put all these hedges around the law of God. So you don't even come near its original intent and purpose, which deals with what? Your outward appearance? No, your heart that's what the problem is. And by the way, there's a little bit, if not a lot, of the Pharisee and me and you, right? We can all be Pharisees. So be on guard. That's one of the things we ought to see here. So this man was not committing a crime. In fact, he was obeying the Lord Jesus, who in Matthew 12 is called what? The Lord of the Sabbath. He gave the Sabbath. And as Jesus teaches elsewhere, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. We are not to be enslaved by the Sabbath. It was a gift of God given to us. And So this man's answer in verse 11. It says that as he was asked the question in verse 10. By these Pharisees, the Jews. He answered them, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. That's all he knew at this point. So he told the truth. In verses 12 and 13, they want to know who did this. Then they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? You see, they're not focusing on who healed the man. He says the one who healed me. They're like, oh, forget that. We're not going to talk about that. That's an inconvenient truth. We're going to talk about the fact that he told you to break the Sabbath. And that's, again, what they are fixated upon with this incident. And so Jesus, we must stop and note, he did not sin. If Jesus sinned and broke the Sabbath, beloved, that means we're still in our sins. Because Jesus must have been Had to be the lamb without spot or blemish, the sinless Son of God to be the perfect sacrifice in our place. Hebrews 4 tells us that. And Jesus healed this man. Why? It was an act of mercy. You know, we talk about today on the Lord's Day doing acts of necessity and mercy things which are absolutely necessary, things which are acts of mercy. I remember throughout my years being involved in nursing home ministries on Sunday, giving people rides to church on Sunday, and of course even today engaging in Christian hospitality, having people over into our homes, whether it's for lunch or a Sabbath day evening. I encourage you to do the same as we find our Savior here committing a work of mercy Towards this man. As we consider the Pharisees here in Mark, rather Matthew 9:12, Jesus says about them, he says, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Those who are, quote, healthy, who see no need for a physician. That's not why Jesus came. He came for those who are sick. Those who have been humbled by their own personal sin, personal failures and shortcomings before God. You feel your weakness before God. Jesus came for you, if that is you, my friend. And he came for this man, I believe, in our text. This paralyzed man healed by Christ. So as we think about what Jesus does here, let's not swing, you know. We tend to do that. We tend to swing from one side to the other. We see an error here. We go way over here. And guess what? That's an error, too. We see legalism way over here. That's Jesus condemns that. Let's go way over here to antinomianism, where we don't have a regard for God's law. We have a flippant attitude towards the Lord's Day. Well, the Lord's Day is still binding. That would take another sermon to unpack that, but we've seen that Here at Providence, many times, and no doubt you, many of you, have been taught that as well. You know, Jesus grew up going to the temple, being about his father's business in the temple. Um, When we find Jesus in his ministry, he's not in the shop as a carpenter; he's at the synagogue or at the temple. And so, then, as we think about this text, we've seen the right use of the Lord's Day, the Sabbath. We've seen its perversion by the Jews, the Pharisee, and then last, we see the conflict. Over the Sabbath, just real quickly here. It says there that in verse 15, before I skip over it, there is a window into this conversation between Jesus and this man. It's actually there uh, in verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. And said to him, see, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Jesus sought him out. This man was in the temple. I believe, I agree with those who say, in order to offer the sacrifice of thanksgiving to his God. I mean, if you had been crippled 38 years and you were part of the Jewish community, would you not be inclined to go where you can meet with God and pray and thank him? think that was the case with this man. Jesus finds him there. He knew he was there. So he has this conversation. You have been made well, whole, healthy. Sin no more. It's a command. It's in the present tense. The other commands were in the aorist. That's sort of a past tense. Greeks love the aorist tense. It's very common. But here he uses the present tense. It could be translated stop sinning. Or sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. What does he mean by that? Many say, and this is true, lest a worse thing come upon you means hell. Because Jesus says in Luke thirteen three, unless you repent you will likewise perish. You know, those men who were crushed by the tower at Siloam. Repentance is necessary, not only faith in Jesus, but repentance, having a new attitude towards your sin. You hate it. You despise it. You turn from it in obedience to God. You follow him. You follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you perfect as a Christian? No, are Christians perfect? No, no, no. Do we seek to follow and obey God and love him and show our love for him in that way? Yes. And so Jesus commands this man to repentance repentance. He could refer to hell. That is definitely true. If no man repents and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, hell awaits him. That's there in verse 14. Or it could mean that many years before, this man had co- committed some sin, this pattern of sin that led to his condition. And before you dismiss that, thinking that means God is a meaning. Listen to these scriptures in Psalm 119 and verse 71. The psalmist said this, it was good for me that I was afflicted. That I might learn your statutes. Have you considered that when you go through trials? James says, consider it all joy. He, he puts your faith to the test. He, he puts it through the fire and strengthens it. But also when you go through the trial it helps you to obey the commandments of God. Remember, God struck Uzziah, King Uzziah, because he committed the act of the, the, the priest and he struck him with leprosy. And in first Corinthians 11, there were Christians at the Lord's table. Which had a, they had a cavalier attitude towards it and God made him sick. He, he even took some home early. He killed them. Unless you get the wrong idea, remember Hebrews 12, verse 6. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. And it goes on in verse 11. Now, no chastening seems joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Do you suffer like this man suffered? In some way. That. Is in your life Christian. To lead you to repentance. And obedience to God. And so this teaches us then. Not to take God's grace and mercy. Lightly. Right. To be a good steward of the grace. That God through Christ has shown upon us. The forgiveness of sins that we have. Through Jesus. And to seek to turn from our sins and follow Jesus, to love him and obey his command. So this man then in verse 15 identifies Jesus to the authorities. Some say he turned on Jesus. He turned him in. I think this man had good intentions, like all the, the old dead commentators say, the dead guys. And uh, he probably had good intentions. Hey, I want to tell you who did this, right? He wants to give glory to Christ, but they were unwilling to give glory to Christ. They just wanted him gone because he was wrecking their system. And so we are told in verse 16, this is why Jesus uh, was persecuted by the Jews. And some translations put sought to kill him, why they sought to kill him. Because he had done these things on the Sabbath. And so we have it set up. the following passage. Now quickly, as we think about this this morning, I just want to leave you with one thing. It is Christ alone who we need. We don't need a pool at Bethesda. We don't need a few friends to help us get by, although we appreciate it and there is the community of the saints. No, we need Jesus alone to heal us of our diseases, to make our paralysis be gone to make us walk to make our tongues speak with joy so that we might praise the living God it is Jesus who comes and gives us grace and mercy and ultimate healing yes and we see here he gives us the strength to obey him by his word his spirit to follow him and sin no more in other words Jesus is the great physician You might be healed of a wound, an illness, a disease, and you might not. I know a reformed and Presbyterian pastor, very conservative, who says God healed his knee. He heard it, went to the doctor, yeah, it's hurt. Then after some time he went back and he said, I, I don't I don't know what to say, to the doctor, I don't know what to say. God healed your knee. God might do that. He may not. But if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It is to be among the saints made perfect so your spirit will go be with the Lord. You'll be joyful in God's full presence there. And at the last day, guess what? Your body, even though it may have been struck by a car, burned in a fire, or just died of natural causes, your resurrected body will once again be joined with your spirit. You will be full, you will be complete, you will be whole without sin, without disease, without being tired. And Jesus, he pushes us forward to think about the resurrection at that day. So do you need healing? Do you need healing from your sin? Look to Jesus, the great physician. Repent. And turn to Him. Christian, do you desire to be healed from your sickness? And of course, your besetting sins. Lest something worse come upon you. That's something we ought to consider here as well. Then look to Christ who brings full and complete healing. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Jesus who is the great physician. Lord, not a thousand pills with 10,000 side effects, could ever do what Jesus came to do and will do at the last day. Let us remember that. Let us be good stewards of the grace you've given to us, the gift of repentance you've given to us, and the faith that you've given to us as well. We pray in the name of the author and finisher of our faith, our Lord Jesus. Amen.